I was going off <laughs> square, <laughs> and I'm like, just count me in. And you're like looking at me. Ted's over here flailing around, and you just start He's the a music. great philanderer. It was so. great. I mean, tell me, entertainment value was good. Oh, no. Sorry. You should record that. Uh, Stop. Jameson, you okay, buddy? You need to hit the reset button. Let's drink a glass of water real quick and come back. Our... our uh, our star of the our evening. sound guy has had how many beers? Three. Lightweight, mm. buddy. <laughs> All right, so I'm gonna go. dancing yet all right well just keep cutting it you know having that good shake shake with the uh, brothers johnson however you see fit there tedrick um we are back it is the first episode post dingy derby around the old oak table and i think it's episode 71 of taylor trash fly fishing we're being rejoined by uh our correspondent mm-hmm. from the north. Mm-hmm. Hi. Oh, hey. Hi. Hey, hey. Hey, hey. Oh, hey. And we've got <laughs> Ben. A- ben holding down uh, the south end of the table because Carl's uh, <clears throat> Carl's being Carl, and he's uh, um, MIA. Point of order. Oh, shit. Oh, boy. It's not a big point of order. We're going parliamentarian. Parliamentarian. And Seconded. In honor of our... Is your ruler a baby? How does this work? Are you, is this, are you under the Queen's rule? You diplomatic yeah, immunity? Yeah, we did, well, we're not under the Queen's rule, but I mean, if you want to go that way, sure, I guess so. Technically, we are Commonwealth. Okay. Well, the Queen Trudeau, the, um, <laughs> with is a queen. the Parliament, the, um, this is the second episode posting it, Irby, recorded on the 10th, or posted on the 10th. We, we talked about it, because it's called 22 Carat. Gold was the last episode. Oh, so we had. Oh, you're absolutely right. Your point of order is recognized, entered into the record, and fantastic. Thanks for fucking keeping me honest. So the reason I probably in error said it was the first since the Derby. It's the first since we announced the final tally mm-hmm. for the Derby, and. Uh, Thanks to everybody out there that supported the Derby, the thingy before the dinghy, and um, sent money from out of state, participated in person, sent stuff to be sold at Carl's booth. You know who you are. Uh, Appreciate all of you. We were able to cobble together $44,000 that we presented to Marine Discovery Center yesterday. So uh, everybody take a moment. 
pat yourself on the back. We couldn't have done it without you. It's a lot of cheese. Yeah, it's a lot of cheese. A lot of fucking cheese. It still blows my mind. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean. Pretty fucking crazy. Um, yeah. You know, um, that was a big jump from, uh, you know, five to, what did we do? What twelve. We do? Five to 12. Just over 12, I think. To fucking 44. So well, next year we're coming for that hundo. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's pretty aggressive. Uh, but, well, you know, never say never. I'll start selling my body now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 20 bucks is 20 bucks. Well. I mean, how many how many twenty dollar commitments do you have to make to get to a hundred grand? <laughs> if I you know, tomorrow? I haven't seen Jameson in a long time. Haven't fished with him in a long time. He's spending way too much time at the fucking truck stop. Jameson Warnos over here. Well, a lot of lizards <laughs> over here. Warnos. <laughs> Good reference, Ted. Oh. Is that like twenty dollars Canadian or? Well, then I mean that's that's that, that would be fifteen bucks U.S. Oh, so, I mean that's you don't good. want that rate. No, no, no. Yeah, no. it's the wrong rate. Okay, yeah, maybe twenty five. Yeah, okay, okay, all right. So uh, we're happy to be joined by Ted now that uh, COVID restrictions have somewhat been lifted. Ted's back on the prowl, coming in and out of the country, kind of. Free he's, and easy. He's been deemed essential. I have. I you've, have. Been, you've returned to essential status. Correct. Thank God. Yeah. yeah. Both the government of Canada and the United States government recognize me as essential. I don't know why. <laughs> Idiots. <laughs> Idiots. <laughs> Idiots. <laughs> Pulled one over on those guys. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, no. Um, great to be uh, back here. Obviously, uh, with uh, the last 18 months and how that's deliberated, it uh, kind of put a halt to anything business-related. Still was able to kind of get a few trips in here or there and and there, but ultimately uh, not as many as I would have liked. And, you know, really happy to see some kind of normalcy um, start to take shape again as uh, business is starting to boom again and things are coming back around. Well, I mean, truth be told, um, you know, for as being locked down as the northern border was, um, Ted did pull quite the cannonball run mm-hmm. and uh, came down and got his skiff and trailer uh, in the during the height of COVID and talked his way back across the border. <laughs> um, I heard they were a lot more uh, willing to let some uh, coming back versus going into was uh, different, right? Um, it, well, yeah. I mean, they're not going to deny a Canadian citizen entry back into Canada. Okay. Um, it's just us dirty Americans they had to keep out. No. Well, even, even then, actually, it was funny because at the height of COVID, one day I was driving So around. do you guys have, like, newscasts where it's, like, you know, <laughs> uh, talking about, like, caravans of Americans are massing at our southern border? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Yes, and they're actually, trying to get in to come play nickel slots at fucking Harrah's over in uh, Niagara Falls. Yeah, and our government released a statement saying that anybody wanting to come into the country for permanent residency or extended stay would need to apply for a, for citizenship through the appropriate channels or entry through the appropriate channels. Um, we just have a river that people need to cross, but... Well, if you're in Detroit and Windsor, Ontario, yeah, that's that's one river that you need to cross. 
um, the St. Lawrence River as well is another one of those rivers that you need to cross. In, in or the Niagara. Or the Niagara. You better so, swim fast, motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that or you, you better have the uh, triple Lindy, like, fucking on point before you go over the falls. Yeah. I, I don't know. What, what do you think that current runs at in Texas? Going through that river. Oh, it's oh, slow. slow. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. Compare warm, that to the Northern River current. <laughs> warm water river. Yeah, warm yeah. water river. Yeah. No, not those cold water rivers. No. Um, but no, honestly, it's uh, it's actually great to be back. And uh, while the stay is really short-lived, um, you know, feels good to be sitting around here with everybody again and just laughing and making jokes and telling stupid stories and, you know, hearing, hearing the... the Whatever rumor mill that's uh, perpetuated and grown over the course of the last eighteen months is great. So, are you saying that we like yeah, subscribe to fabricate rumor and and innuendo? <laughs> what are you trying to say? I'm just saying that this a- is a very serious show that deals only in fact. <laughs> I'm just saying just that the we facts, take ma'am, ourselves the facts. very seriously. Our sponsors, okay, would be very upset if you question the authenticity of the show. No, and that's I'm I'm just saying the and perpetuation our- of the content that that's continued to grow through this has remained authentic, and you know it's great to come back to that. Conversation. I feel like I never left. I feel like I'm I'm still a part of the conversation, and part of that is because you know the the, the we podcast. have telephones yeah, and we, we talk all the time. Yeah, <laughs> but also the podcast has been released, you know, uh, consistently um, when feasible, of course. Uh, you know, for for a prolonged period of time. So yeah, it's been great to kind of stay up to date and current that way. So uh, one of your most recent border incursions. Um, you met up with uh, somebody because you're taking on uh, a new, should we call it a hobby at this point? You're learning a new craft, a new, I don't want to call it a trade, but you're... Not quite a trade. Uh, I would call it a craft. Yeah, you're learning a new craft. Yep. Tell us a little bit about what's going on in that Um, part of your life. Well... Earlier at the, I mean, at the beginning of the year, I started building rods, and um, you know, to to date, um, I think I'm now on my twelfth rod since I started, and it's been fun to kind of tinker and play with that. I've invested in new tools, tinkering and playing with the rods, a lot of yeah. fun. <laughs> he loves his shafts, <laughs> loves the tip section. Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, tip top is certainly my favorite section. Um, I'm more of a bass guy. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we weren't going to bring this conversation this way. Uh, we really had to swing it this way, didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> two-handed um, or? Man, I, I tell you, the two-hand tug is the drug. But um, no, so, I mean, I started building, uh, rod building this year, and uh, it's gone well, and I've had a real good time doing it, um, building rods. Um, and... Uh, I think the last podcast that I was on, I was talking about it just sort of um, in context. Trying well, to you had actually watched watched, watched uh, Vokey's yeah. um, master's class yeah. on bamboo. Yeah, that's it. So Bob Clay did a um, master class on uh, bamboo rod building, and it was uh, something like a 24-part um, series. And it was really informative, and I was like, wow, this is like, 
really crafty shit. Like, mm-hmm. you know, one, it's technical. Two, you know, it's mathematic to an extent, so it's pretty precise in nature. And, uh, you know, it takes skill. And I really appreciate handcrafted stuff. Uh, I always love doing things with my hands, um, mm-hmm. building stuff. Um, <laughs> And, uh, you know, the fabrication process in, in its own, if you, if you can kind of build things from, from start to finish, um, it, it's really fulfilling. And so uh, I, I certainly admired that craft. And obviously I was talking about it. And uh, one of our listeners, uh, one of the podcast listeners reached out um, to you, Larry. And then um, uh, we kind of, uh, you, you kind of connected me with him. And yep. Conversation sort of developed. And, you know, all of a sudden... Um, you know, the, the interest kind of grew a little bit more. And um, the conversation around bamboo rod building more specifically, um, and just whether or not I'd be interested in pursuing a path in uh, building split cane rods and bamboo rods. And at first, I mean, it was really something that I was interested in, but wasn't necessarily there in my life yet, just because one, tool investment is pretty significant. So um, that's, that's one part of it. Um, financially, I mean, my wife and I just welcomed our second child, right? So it's it, it, it's hard to kind of wrap your mind around the investment on top of having the family to support and everything like that. So that was that was one hurdle. And then next is just the time commitment. Um, and so, um, you know, we, we connected. Um, I don't know if should I reveal? Yeah, yeah if, I so. mean, if you're comfortable with it, I mean, yeah, you, yeah. you know, you know Joe better than yeah, well, the rest wanna, of us. I want to do him some justice because I mean, he's. Uh, I mean, I think this is a fantastic story because yeah. basically, this is you know a, a craft, a trade, um, essentially, where you know the nuance of it, and like you say, you know, the mathematics of it are there. But there's certainly the the physicality of experience that has to enter into it, and there's very few things now in our current society mm-hmm. that you have that gets passed generation to generation. Yeah, and certainly the building of split split cane rods is such a tiny. Mm-hmm you know, microcosm within fly fishing that you've got some true masters that have been doing it for decades. And, you know, to me, this story is really special because someone heard Ted talking about, I'm building rods. I was doing this master's class. I'm really interested in it. And it piqued their interest to the point that it opened up a conversation for, for, this person to pass on their knowledge and pass it to the next generation because mm-hmm. let's be, let's be frank and serious. You know, the, you know, there's a lot of folks in fly fishing that are becoming very old yeah. and there's going to be some voids that are left unless people step up and learn certain yeah. crafts yeah so back to you I, I didn't mean to step on no, you. That, no, like, no that's no, that's what i really love about this story yeah so i mean um joe gilmartin uh who donated the uh bamboo rod for auction uh for this year's dinghy derby mm-hmm. um reached out to you and uh you know sent you a note that said hey i'm i'm stepping out i'd like to step away from this and i'm looking to potentially pass this off to somebody all my knowledge and and 
see if there's any opportunity to maybe speak to Ted. I heard him talking about things on the podcast, and I think he'd be genuinely interested. And um, you called me the next day, and you said, hey, would you be interested in this? And I think I was really, first of all, floored at the generosity. Absolutely. Um, you know, I totally, totally wasn't expecting it. I mean, um, for somebody to, one, make an offer to potentially mentor uh, me and, and, and take on his knowledge and what he's inherited um, from a knowledge perspective. Um, but two, it's just, I had no idea where to start because one, like it had crossed my mind. Maybe I'd like to get into this, but today is not the day. And then all of a sudden God hands you this opportunity to like, just here's your chance. Either you take it or you don't. But you know, that's one of those things that, um, you know, you really have to make a decision whether or not getting, you're going to commit to it because. Yeah. When you hear the knock at the door, yeah. do you open it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, um, you know, I, I, I sent him a note and um, we connected and we chatted the first time we chatted and you know, I hope that he comes on this podcast one day and yeah, have my, a conversation with yeah, him. Yeah, I, I want to sit down attention. and do a beer with with him yeah. for sure. Yeah, um, I mean he sent uh, one of the better you know mail barges in a long time and uh, it blew us blew me away anyway. I had no idea that he owned a fly shop in South Florida. Yep, you know he's got. The same skiff that I have two whole numbers away, you know, it's just, you know, there's there's a lot about Joe Gilmartin that I think we need to sit down and put on, on you know, and for posterity, for a lot of people to hear his story. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we, we I, I think it was like a Saturday morning or Sunday morning and, um, you know, we set up a time to talk and <clears throat> 9 a.m. and. My wife Zaza like looked at me like while I was on the phone. She's like, "Who the fuck are you talking to?" Like it was it was kind of like a weird moment because you know it's like, "What do you say to this guy?" Hey man, like I really appreciate your offer. Appreciate your offer. I'd love to take you up on it, but you don't know where to start. So, um, you know, really he was he he was really really. Um, I mean, he seemed motivated to find somebody to work with to kind of pass the craft off and to and 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 ultimately i i told him very transparently i said look you know i really need to kind of think think this through to make sure that one i want you to feel good about making a decision like this um you know i don't want to just say yes now and then i i'm not committed to it and it doesn't do you and what you've built up over the course of the last 30 years any justice like i want to feel really good about it and i want you to feel good about it so i thought about it more and more and um didn't he, was, he didn't he send you some yeah literature some books yeah to read? he did he did so he sent me um he sent me an email with i'll get to this story in a second with the guy um who he picked up off uh, picked all his starter tools up off of and and mentored him, but second to that, he sent me uh, a wonderful book by um, an author, John uh, uh, Gearark, who's uh, you know kind of like a fly fishing author, uh, writes some pretty good stuff, but he's a pretty good writer, um, and he wrote this book called um, uh, uh, Fishing Bamboo, and it just gives you this whole context of what bamboo split cane is all about and just sort of the nuances between builders, the, the, the culture and sort of a little bit about the history in the U S and it was actually a really interesting book, not a long book, about 110 pages, but still very well written and just a good overall story right. about one person's experience with bamboo. And he also sent me a few, um, 
other videos and stuff like that. And the more we spoke, um, and, and the more I thought about it, the more I kind of bought into the idea that, you know, hey, maybe I don't necessarily want to commit to this to, to, to build a business around it, but I want to commit to this to, one, take on the craft and build things with my hands because, you know, there are so many different creative elements involved in rod building that, you know, if you can personalize and, and build rods the way that you want, like, you're, you're ultimately <clears throat> building a fishing experience around the way that you really, really want it. Yeah. And um, that was something that I really, really bought into. Um, and uh, yeah, I started speaking to friends about about it, just the idea. And everybody was kind of like, man, split cane, bamboo, it's so heavy. Why the fuck would you want to lug that shit around on the river? This, that, and the other. And I said, it's not a, you know, for some of them, it, it wasn't about that. But others were really, really into that idea. Yeah. And like, hey, man, you know, I mean, let me know. I would love to kind of, you know, follow you along on this journey. So, um, again, I really bought into the idea and, um, you know, I, the more I spoke to Joe about it, the more he, I feel like he was, he felt comfortable with his decision. And the more I started to feel confident that I was going to be making the right decision to kind of maybe take on his, uh, take him up on his offer, which, um, was very generous really in his time and mentorship and, uh, you know, some of his tools and stuff like that and, uh, work in agreement around that. But, um, you know, he... It's interesting because the way he started, and I hope that you know when you do sit down, you talk to him about this. But and and I don't want to spoil the story, but really very similar to kind of me. Somebody had posted an ad. A guy by the name of David Lewis posted an ad, like a classified ad, in in the early '90s, and you know he just sort of reached out to the guy, and then for whatever reason, you know the guy picked him. Right. And uh, conditional to the fact that. Or Joe said, I want to do this, conditional to the fact that, you know, you mentor me. And so I hope, you know, he, he tells you a little bit about that. But, you know, this is a, a one bamboo rod building. The community is super tight-knit. Mm -hmm. Everybody seems to know each other, which is something that I'm starting to gather as I'm looking through some of the social media feeds. And there's some really beautiful work out there for sure. Yeah. Um, but, two, it's, I mean, it's like the counterculture of an already counterculture in fly fishing it's like the counterculture of the counterculture which is really cool and so you have this completely different world of commitment to fooling fish you know to eat these fucking feathers on lines whether it's a synthetic line or a silk line or whatever so um you know i just i really bought into the fact that one i could craft things with my hands and 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 really build things from the ground up uh potentially fish it catch fish on it but you know also invite people to be a part of that experience and journey by building rods for them or, mm -hmm. you know, kind of participating in that. Well, it really bonds you, you yeah. know, if, if you're the person that built someone the rod and they go out and they fish it, you know, and 10 years later, they're still fishing the same rod and yeah. you're still in touch because, you know, let's be honest, most high end, and when I, when I say, I mean, hand built, any, anything hand-built, like a, a bamboo rod, you're going to know the builder, talk to the builder, have a relationship with the builder, and then you're going to cherish and treat that rod as an heirloom mm -hmm. and probably stay in touch with that person. And it's yeah. going to be a journey that you take together, which is, yeah. you know, which is, again, back to the, you know, he's been crafting these things. I, I bet he knows, you know, a couple of hundred guys that he's made rods for over the last 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. And he probably has a bank of stories of, 
insane catches or insane almost catches, you know, yeah. just. Yeah, I mean. I, I mean, I, so, I think it will really bring you together with a lot of people, yeah. which is which is really cool. Sitting here listening to you guys talk about it, it, it reminds me of the classic car culture, right? Yep. You know, whoever's going to build you that classic car. Right. You're going to know them in and out. You mm-hmm. know, and that's going to be a fairly family heirloom for you, you know, for generations to come. And on top of that, there's a couple guys in that industry that are, you know, the creme de la creme and, you know, they're the old guard. You right. Know, there's not very many people nowadays that can tune an engine just by listening to it. Right. There's not many people that can build a split cane rod from a couple pieces of, you know, maybe one piece of bamboo. Yeah. Uh-huh. Or, or commit themselves or right. dedicate themselves to growing that craft and mm-hmm. to becoming like to, to becoming the top of that sort of class of builder. Right. Yeah. And you know, the biggest thing, I mean, you sort of said it there, there's not that many people that, that can kind of just listen to, to an engine the way that it's tuned and just say, Oh, this needs this, or this needs that. The biggest thing for me is one being able to learn effectively to build, to be, be the best that I can possibly be in that. But second to that is generationally, I hope that my kids now, my two boys, you know, take an interest in, in, in fishing, you know, and, and eventually potentially this is something that they see that is like, Oh, dad works hard to do this. He, mm-hmm. he builds these things with his hands and they can take lessons away from that. So for me, it's, you know, not only is it, am I selfish in saying I want to build rods for myself, but from an altruism perspective, being able to extend that to my kids and give mm-hmm. them sort of the lessons or take takeaways from that kind of experience and right. how they can apply that in their own life journey is much more fulfilling to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, I mean, the rod building in it makes itself, perfect sense. Yeah, is uh, something I think that gets lost on, especially the young guys coming into fly fishing. You know, they why would I build my own rod when I could go to Sage or you know, G Loomis or whomever and get one yeah. pre-built for me. Right. You know, and then they just, they don't, they, they lose that personal touch. They lose that yeah. custom flair. They lose, you know, the, the, the specialness behind it. It's just an $800 rod. Well, right? Hank, you know, the, the other side of that though, is you would think that these companies would want people to get into rod building <laughs> because right. the overhead on, yeah. You know, people building the rods in factory is probably way higher than the actual blank itself. Yeah. You know? And, and I mean, these companies could probably make way more margin just selling the blanks. Well, I think that's why Epic markets that way so much. Exactly. So if you were to, you know, give any advice to anybody that, you know, has heard about it, maybe has met somebody that had a custom rod, you know, if if you had any advice for somebody that was possibly looking to get into it, you know, what where would where would you start if you had to go back and you hadn't even gone gone down this road? Well, I I think I spoke about this on the last podcast that I was on, but like I I'm the kind of person that's not going to make a like an impulse buy decision unless you know really it's something that I absolutely really want. Unless you're at a strip club, yeah, exactly. <laughs> impulse. I'll buy. take a dance. Yeah, I'll take a dance. Um, but I did a lot of research, just kind of like weighing the pros and cons of rod building and um you know it means watching a lot of youtube videos about the time commitment about like methodology about how to do this how to do that looking at prices on blanks looking at what blanks i'd potentially want to build what are the prices of components to the point where i was building spreadsheets on the cost of components and blank and it was it really it was almost like a sickness for like a month it consumed me 
um, to the point where I wasn't even doing any work. I was really just, I was, I was calculating how much it would cost to build rods, you know, different blanks and stuff like that. And, um, you know, I was at, at one point I said, okay, well, I, I got to at least build one rod to see what it's like. And, I, you know, I bought the CRB starter kit. Now, all of a sudden, like, I've got woodworking tools in my house that, like, I've spent thousands of dollars on to just to be able to kind of you know, turn a fucking cork grip. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, or, that's... or a bandsaw so that I could cut my own like burl. Um, there's a, there's a guy who actually, and I got real lucky. There's a guy who live, um, doesn't live. Sorry. He's got a business. Um, just basically sells cords of wood, but every one of the tree cutting companies or like, you know, the, the tree pruners and stuff like that, they just come. Arborist. Just, arborist. Yeah. They come and they dump all their, like, scrap logs or whatever, all their logs from a day of cutting wood over on his lot, and he just cuts cords of wood. So I went to go see him one day. I was like, hey, man, if you get any burl wood, whether it's, you know, oak, uh, maple, uh, elm, whatever, just, yeah. you know, uh, walnut, give me a call. And sure enough, I've got, like, four wood burls sitting in my basement ready to be cut. And it's like, you know, I mean, it's... The thing that I love about that most is that, you know, one day someone's going to get a rod built that has, like, something that I built from start to finish um, and has things that I had entirely in my control that contribute to the overall aesthetic of the final product. And uh, you can't necessarily get that out of graphite rods that are production graphite rods. I mean, those rods are great. Don't get me wrong. And I've built um, a number of them since I started building. And I'm sure Chris Adams listening to this, who's probably built hundreds of rods in his time at um, Mudhole and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I, when he started, whether whether or not it was for work or whether it was just for ho- hobby, I'm sure he had a lot of the same motivations that I did. So, you know, really, if I could give any advice, is just try it once. And if you don't like it, I'm sure you could sell sell the gear on on ebay or on craigslist but you know really it's a good set of skills to have i mean larry you broke a rod guide uh on one of your rods like i don't know what two months ago a month and a half ago or something like that yeah imagine you could have the tools just at home sitting to just cut off the old rod guide or the old guide feet and just put a new guide on and yeah. you know a day later you're ready to fish again with that same rod so i mean even from uh, a rod repair perspective the uh, the skills are pretty valuable yeah, I mean, and you know, and for the record, I didn't break my rod. <laughs> <laughs> it was corrosion. <laughs> the the foot of oh, the guide so just manu- like manufacturer's defects. What you're saying? They use subpar materials. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's uh, the fact that I don't clean up or rinse off shit. It just you know, he's called casualty assault, assault for a reason. Yeah, yeah. casualty right. assault. So, but how many years? I mean, how many years? I mean, how often does that happen? You know, yeah, it's the first time it's ever happened. Exactly, exactly. You know, but um, one thing that I did notice is that on a lot of grips and stuff like that, people's corks separating and stuff like that Uh on some of the production rods, it it just happens, you know, from use. Um, You know, and and rods that tend to have a lot of bend in them, too, you know, where that cork flexes. I actually have a five weight that. I left in the car. Oh yeah, um, and the cork separated. The the cork now slides around on yep. the blank. And, oh my god! And I'm like, what? The, what? You know, it's just because it's it gets hot down here in Florida, and I guess whatever the glue was, you know. So, I think that rod's going to make a trip to Canada at some point. <laughs> as long as it passes yeah. customs. Yeah, but uh, I'll, I'll tell you what, though, this journey has been really 
really good, and uh, Joe Gilmartin has been. Um, you, you met know, up with Joe recently. I did, yeah. So um, I was supposed to head out to Montana to go and uh, meet him and uh, see all his tools in his shop and, and really kind of take some time to sit down with him. And unfortunately, just with the pandemic, it was just tough to get away. Pandemic and, and timing wasn't right. He was going out there in August, and, and our second son was born August 7th. So it's like, you know, I just couldn't get away. Um, nor did I want to risk <laughs> getting away. Um, but um, he was up in Maine. Um, he lives in Florida now, so he's moved from Montana to Florida. And he, he was up in Maine hunting for birds um, or starting a trip. And uh, I said, well, I'll come and I'll meet you in Maine. And he drove a number of his tools up for me to kind of take and bring back home. Um, and so we hung out for a day, um, had lunch, had a really good conversation. Um, you know, it was really nice to meet him. Very, very, very classy guy. Um, hell of a beard. <laughs> hell of a beard. Um, but uh, really, I just kind of left there knowing that, like, you know, hey, this is a guy that genuinely wants to give me his knowledge and, 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 and pass on his craft. And, um, you know, for that, I'm extremely thankful. So now have you done any split cane start to finish? or I, I have not yet. So, um, again, like I said, with uh, the graphite rod building, I was really methodical in, in, yeah. in taking the steps to understand what, what was really involved. And, um, you know, I've really got to be just as diligent and, um, and, and educate myself with uh, the split cane piece. So mm -hmm. I've got a number of books. I've got a number of books that are also coming, but I've got a number of books at home. Um, that uh, I'm going through right now. Um, I've got to sort through the tools, make sure I understand exactly how to use them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and then um, I got to go and I've I've got to buy columns, bamboo columns. Um, so that's what I, that's was next on my question list because I watched some videos on bamboo rod building and you know they talked about the guys that go to I believe it's a province in China that yeah. All, like it all comes from this one yeah, Tonkin Kane. Yeah. Um, so yeah, well, there's 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 two companies in um, in, in the U.S. that uh, bring cane, and one is a company called Peak, and they're run by uh, a group that uh, have a site called Golden Witch, and they sell a bunch of components and stuff like that for you know just rod building in general. But okay, um, so Peak Bamboo, and then the other is Angler's Bamboo, and they're based out of uh, Livingston, Montana. So Peak is actually in Pennsylvania, I believe they're in Western Pennsylvania. Um, so Peak's actually not that far away from you know I could kind of make it there in a five hour drive. Right. Um, but uh, Angler's Bamboo, they have uh, their Livingston, Montana location. They've also got a kind of forwarding warehouse in uh, Vermont, which I'm hoping that I can go and pick up some columns there. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's interesting. They, they go hand-select their columns, uh, put them on a container. It takes, you know, I don't know, four months, maybe a year now with the backup <laughs> over right. reports on the West Coast. Um, mm. Yeah. Pretty neat stuff. So did he give you, like, a heads up, like, you know, when you start this journey, Ted, you're going to probably <laughs> screw up for a good six, eight months, a yep. year, 18 months, whatever it is. Like, don't, don't like get discouraged, but you yeah. know, you're going to, you're going to fuck up a few. I figure, yeah, I'm definitely going to fuck up a few. Um, I figure it'll take me probably about 
15 rods to start to get into a flow of a building properly. And that means getting the tapers exactly right. That means, um, you know, really understanding the entire process start to finish so that I could be more autonomous and rely less on the material that, you know, is in, in, instructive. Really start to get into a flow of understanding what I'm doing. Um, Your own signature. Too. Yeah, it, yeah. It, yeah, that's it. But you know the other the other side of it is is just it's it's all trial and error. I mean, even probably guys who've been building for years and years and years, they, they're still making mistakes to this day. And 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 the one thing is, you know, after I loaded all the tools up in my truck that Joe had for me, he kind of looked at me. He goes, "Oh, and by the way, your hands are going to get really fucked up." Yeah. <laughs> and at that point, did you show him your thumb? Oh yeah, yeah. No, no, yeah. <laughs> I said, "Well, they're already pretty fucked up." Um, yeah. But uh, no, he he was like, "Man, I, I cut my hands. Bamboo cuts like you know, puts splits into your skin. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, on 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 uh, using kind of planers and stuff like that. I mean, that'll that'll slice you up real good. You know, because those need to be specially sharpened and everything like that. So I mean, there's a lot of there are a lot of things that could cut you. You could lose fingers in a lathe. Who knows? I mean, so um, or cut yourself on a bandsaw even worse. Oh, worse." <laughs> So is it uh, is it sacrilege to put cork grips on a bamboo rod, or is that okay? Because I know most of them have the the wood burl. You know, grip. I at I, least the ones that I've seen. I mean, I don't I don't recall any that I've seen that have cork. Or I just know, didn't know if they mentioned anything. If there was a, the, I think it's um. Here's the thing. It um. What I've gathered is bamboo rod building is an extremely personal experience, right? So it's mm-hmm. it's really it's builder preference, and um, okay. you know I, I I think I'm indifferent. I I don't know how I'd like the feel of like uh, a birch like a birch bark uh, grip or like a wood burl grip um, itself. I I think I really like the feel of cork. Um, you know groups like. Uh, Tom, like Tom Morgan Rodsmiths, who are probably one of the premier production bamboo rod builders right now, um, you know, they build with with, with floor grade cork. Um, Thomas and Thomas, they're building their bamboo rods with floor grade cork, um, you know, and and so on and so forth. Uh, and and what's really interesting to see is that actually, I don't know if you guys have kind of noticed on social media, but um, in the last few months, I've started to see posts of like anglers and like let's call them air quotes pros you know or pro staff from these production rod companies like a thomas and thomas fishing bamboo rods for like larger species like gt and saltwater species and stuff like that permit so on and so forth so it's kind of what's interesting is you're starting to see you know and i know i'm deviating off of what i was just saying about cork but you're starting to see more and more yeah bamboo rods in popular media on and in, on in on the social channels. So well, you know, I I would I would say that's like akin to, you know, fashion. Mm-hmm. You know, things yeah. you know go full circle. And if you know those pro staff guys or influencers or whatever, you know, it, it's just coming back around that you know the new nuance of what they're doing is you know. Everybody's already gone and explored, um, you know, for GTs. So what do you do? We're doing it with bamboo. Yeah. You know, so it's just like the next progression in marketing. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that was a thing when uh, Thomas and Thomas kind of had their 
relaunch. I think they had gotten passed around ownership wise, mm-hmm. and uh, when, when they came back, they were you know really hard. To, I, I think the one you're talking about is called the Sextant, is what they call it. Um, but uh, it's a it's a really interesting. Um, I casted one of those at the last I cast, and okay. it's definitely a different feel than your traditional. I think I casted the eleven twelve or something like that, and I could see that being you know like a niche uh, market. You, you know, I mean, it, it again going to angler preference now on sort of how you want to yeah. feel, and and so here's the thing that um, uh, fishing bamboo book that I read, the Gerark book that I read. Um, you know, really, angler preference was something that he referred to several times. It's like, you know, you're really going to feel this rod. You're going to feel how it casts. You're going to feel the line. You're going to feel every movement. And you don't have that damping effect that graphite, carbon graphite rods traditionally have. Carbon is really, carbon graphite is really, it's a material that absorbs energy, right? So you don't feel vibrations the way that you would on a natural material like, like bamboo. So, um, you know, it's really interesting, and I'm and and I haven't I haven't casted. You know, to be completely honest, I haven't casted a bamboo rod yet, and I'm sure the first one that I'm going to cast is going to be one that is either one that I build or one that is very close to one that I build. That you know, somebody says, "Here, try this." You know, but it'll be around around the time that I probably complete or am near completion of a bamboo rod that I build. But I've read enough to know that. I'm going to feel things completely different and Mm -hmm. and I can appreciate that. And if I can control what I feel in my hand by the way that I'm building it, I know that I'm going to appreciate it a lot more than if I were to just buy a production bamboo rod from one of the rod builders or rod makers in, in big box form that's still selling or making them Mm -hmm. like a Winston, like a Thomas and Thomas or like a Tom Morgan. And, And I'm not taking away from what they do because they're, they're beautiful rods, like don't get me wrong. Yeah. But I'd far rather build my own and, and become a master of that craft. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, cool. Um, you know, that that's one of the things that I knew that I, I really was looking forward to hear you share about. Um aside from that, um Ted has been spending uh quite a bit of time throughout the pandemic up in the gas bay. And uh, when we come back from break, maybe uh, we'll take a turn around the table and hear some Atlantic salmon tales. Test, test. 
One, two, three. Pickles. <laughs> you have three? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> no. no. <laughs> Not some kind of like weird third nipple <laughs> abnormal. That's more of a Chernobyl thing. Oh. Three testicles. <laughs> so, um, anybody around the table done any fishing since we last sat down and shot the shit? Well, I think Ben and Larry, you guys were cruising the beat, weren't we, you? We did a little, we got out. Yeah, we, uh... You're always so coy with it. You just, just say, I went fishing. I mean, we went on a trip. We actually, uh... You just get promoted and you come here and shit talk the way I talk about fishing? Come on, bro. No, man, I've just, I've always, I've always felt that. It's always like... It's Mr. Calm, Cool Cucumber situation over here. I feel like that was a all, come at me, bro. Not all glorious pickle makers like Ted. <laughs> Some of us are just unripe cucumbers. No, it's not a come at me. It's just something to pick on people with sometimes. Uh, we did go out and fish and we had a damn good time fishing. I bet you See? did. That's that's what I want to hear. It's enthusiasm, baby. Yeah. Our trip um, got off to a bit of a rocky start. Um, not the fishing part of it, but uh, we arrived uh, two hours prior to our departure time, as advised by the Transportation Security Administration, the TSA, um, based on all of the COVID things going on and did your cavity check run smooth? Or? Very smooth. Uh, very yeah. smooth. Said this is the best they looked since last time. I buttered up my crack really good just, just to make sure it went smooth. No KY or actual butter? Butter. Actual butter. <laughs> salted or unsalted? He's a land of lake. Irish, Irish salted. Oh, good, good. So uh, we get to the airport, got through <laughs> security really, really quick, and uh, almost immediately we start getting notifications that our flight was delayed mm. and we're like son of a bitch and this is like right now you got like in the news southwest and you know uh i think it was american that were like canceling all these flights and i was like man please don't please don't be that yeah and i did a little rooting around on the uh flight following app and saw that our plane had started its day in Sanford and flew up to Kentucky mm-hmm. and apparently into the Kentucky Triangle because it wasn't coming back. <laughs> like, there was no departure paperwork filed, no flight plan, no nothing. It just fucking vaporized. Hmm. So, eventually, they started updating us that uh, they had found another plane and then our, our new departure time was like one thirty. Uh, then it went to 2.15. And then it was like 3 o'clock. So we actually did board the plane with an expectation to leave at 3. And when we pushed off from the gate, um, we taxied out. And just prior to starting the boarding process... Uh, Sanford was actually hosting and having the Thunderbirds as part of an air show the weekend that we were leaving. And they were doing their air show practice. Um, And, man, talk about shaking 
the fucking terminal and like loud. Holy crap. It was, it was awesome getting to see, you know, part of the air show. And, uh, it actually started to make more sense because once we pushed back, we taxied out and I mean, he, you know, everything was going really normal. Um, the pilot came over the PA told the flight attendants, you know, we're first for departure, go ahead and, you know, get seated or whatever and then we get to the end and we sit there mm. and we sit there that's the and worst. we sit there yeah. and finally he comes back on and he says folks uh you may have noticed uh you know what was going on with uh the air show practice and uh the reason our departure was pushed to three o'clock is the airport's effectively been closed for the air show practice uh until three o'clock and now that it's back open, well, since we're on the ground, we have less priority than the other 10 planes that have been circling nearby <laughs> waiting oh to land. Gosh. So we're waiting on 10 airplanes to come in and land before we're going to be able to take off. And uh, so about two minutes between arrivals, you know, 20 minutes later, we got rolling. But I will say, tip of the cap to the captain, he kept. The power pushed forward, and we got there quick. Yeah. We I don't feel like we got there later than we were supposed to after the 3 o'clock departure time, like much. He, yeah. he made up that 20 minutes real quick. Yeah, yeah. He, I mean, to the point that they did, a, you know, the, the snack and beverage service mm-hmm. and barely got the carts put away by the time they were like, okay, we're starting our initial descent into yeah. Tri-Cities. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was it was it was a smooth flight. So we got up there, buddy of mine that uh, I've known since sixth grade, good friends with, picked us up at the airport, took us, dropped us off at the house, and um, we made plans to meet he, he and his wife uh, for dinner later that evening. They split. We drove ourselves down, um, met them, had dinner. I think. Uh, Friday-ish, we went and just hung out at the fly shop for a bit, Um, just shot the shit, and um, unfortunately, the TVA's uh, generation uh, schedule on the tailwaters uh, did not meet with uh, us being able to uh, handle ourselves a ride in a drift boat, so that was a bust. Um, Saturday... Uh, we already had Saturday evening plans to uh, meet up with Greg, who you guys uh, yeah. met at uh, the Dingy Derby. He's got that sexy new Tiller Nomad. But uh, we went up and uh, checked out his cabin up on top of uh, the mountain out, I guess, be south of Mountain City, uh, right on the... Tennessee North Carolina border. Tennessee border. So, You've got a photo. Yes. I, yeah, I want to see that because you get, you jumped out of the truck to take that photo. Um, there's like, you know, the GS uh, geo markers yeah. that like the U.S. Uh, National Park Service. No, not even the Park Service. It's the uh, Ted. Uh, you're fixing. U.S. Over. It's empty. U.S. Geological Survey. Okay. The U.S. Geological Survey puts those disks, and uh, there's one of those on top of the mountain that they live on, and 
what, what was it like forty three hundred? Yeah, does that, I can. Oh, so it had the elevation. It had the elevation. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then it also, which I this was new to me, I thought was kind of cool, is it has this. Uh, it has a an arrow that's pointing to the next highest peak. Really. And like a distance, I think he said, um, and then there was a line across the middle of it. And it's mounted on this rock. There you go. Yeah. So, let's see. It's kind of hard to make out what it says. It says... Uh, That's a lie. One of the numbers is hard to make out. Number zero, geodetic survey, horizontal control, um, 4979. It was placed in 1991 by Buell Lewis, Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, Buell. So I guess the peak was at 4,979 feet above sea level. So, you know, pretty high up. Yeah. And uh, basically the right side of the marker, if you stood on that rock, your right foot would have been in North Carolina, your left foot in Tennessee. And uh, it was just cool. Uh, So we went up and uh, Greg had... uh, been running the trailer all day so uh nice. after we went up on we watched the sunset from the mountaintop went back down had uh ribs and pulled pork no i had no. brisket brisket that's right god I'm so jealous so um, dude it was yeah, money because he's done ribs before for me when i was up there that's why i got yeah. confused yeah that was his brit the second brisket he's ever yep. done that's right and it Pretty darn good job on a second did, brisket. He did collards that were fucking amazing. Oh, yeah. Um, so we left his house on Sunday morning and went uh, to meet up with my buddy Kyle. And uh, we went fishing with Kyle on a river for smallmouth. And uh, that was Ben's first uh, trip ever floating yeah. a river in a drift boat. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was let, pretty cool. Let Ben talk about his experience. Yeah. Um, super excited. Always wanted to do a float, whether it was on a raft or a drift boat. Was it what you expected? Yeah. I mean, it was yeah. like, I honestly, not that I expected the thing to be tippier. It was, I mean, it's very stable. It's yeah. obviously got a huge flat bottom, but being in a moving river and you kind of expect like, you know, some of our skiffs that they've got like a, round bottom and like it's it's nothing like that it's very stable hmm. you've got good supports you can kind of lock in as you're going over stuff and there's obviously seats but it was it was super cool to float it i would say like a leisurely to brisk pace and you can you know same thing like a drift boat if you're trying to hold a spot because it's good you can back row and keep staying there and it was super cool to see how like, it wasn't like fishing a tailwater. You weren't just throwing it in a seam here. It'd be like, okay, here's these ledges, and you need to stay parallel in this trough and work that fly back this way because that's where your fish are going to be holding. So a little bit new for me. I'd done a little bit of – it wasn't smallmouth. It was like Bartram and Red Eye Bass with Woody the year before. So this was cool to actually get on smallmouth and mm-hmm. took a little bit to get rolling and get them going, and then we – you know, because it was – pretty we get hit a cold snap it was chilly yeah Yeah. and so like as the water came up and the sun like kind of warmed up they started picking up more and getting more active as the day went on it was super awesome and it was it was cool because we got probably what 10 fish yeah 
I'd say 10 probably for the day. And Kyle was like, man, sorry, this sucked. It was slow. And <laughs> to him, it probably was. But to me, I was like, dude, five fish a piece? Like, this is awesome. And they 10. fight so good. Yeah. Super fun. Kyle's like an excellent, we'll call him a guide. I mean, he does guide. Yeah, he, he guides. Yeah. But like keeps you laughing, has fun, makes fun of your bad casts, and then, but isn't like a dick. Yeah. And super <laughs> fun guy to spend the afternoon with, like, or the day really. And like, super great guy. So were you throwing like eight weights or sevens? Sevens. Okay. So right in my normal wheelhouse. Um, yeah. The it took me a minute to. I usually fish pretty fast rods, and so these were like a little more medium. So my first couple casts, and then as you get tired throughout the day, you don't really let it unwind. You're going too fast, and it like you know how it does that pile drive right in front of you, and you're you're throwing sink tips. Yeah, yeah. Hard, left yep. or hard right. Also, I mean, like if you're throwing a medium rod and you're trying to throw it fast, it's gonna cut. To yeah. One side so the other. the I thought we did pretty good. You and I only got tangled one time. I thought that, honestly, for my first time, having to think about someone fishing 10 feet behind me, I was like, yeah. I'll take that. Was that was that a crossed rod or a crossed line? Crossed line. <laughs> so you were throwing downstream. See what you're trying to be there. throwing upstream. <laughs> I mean, swords are going to cross sometimes. You cross swords. Well, did you cross the beam or? No. So cross beam. He was, it, most of the time we were fishing the same bank. And we hit there's certain stretches of river where it was like both sides or so. Okay. He was fishing one way, I was fishing the other, and back cast got tangled. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Okay, so you guys weren't shooting on the same side. Correct. Okay. Not the entire day. No. So when you're in that fishing environment, what like what kind of things were you looking for? Ledges and like undercuts or overhangs from trees or Yes. All the Um any, a lot of ledges. A lot of ledges. Yeah, the, the section of river that we floated um, has a tremendous number of ledges that are perpendicular to the flow. Mm-hmm. So you're casting and trying to get the fly to sink and get into the zone the zone between yeah. in down in that ledge and strip through and then okay basically as the current moves your fly you're trying to strip it faster you want it fast because they're hitting on, they were hitting on a fast strip but you're trying to yeah. keep it in that trough and not spill up to the top of that shelf where they're not going to be hanging out in that much water oh yeah. gotcha um okay. and there was you know some gravelly riffle areas in between yeah um and then of course you know just Hitting the bank. Hit the bank. Hit yeah. the bank. Hit the bank. Um, the launch was, uh, you know, a traditional per, for what you would expect to launch a drift boat type of uh, put in, mm-hmm. you know, gravel access or whatever. Our takeout um, is basically a, <laughs> a completely unprepared, like, out of a pasture. Oh, good. Um, Mud pit? Pretty muddy. Um, the four-wheel drive came in handy. Yeah. The um, the interesting thing about where we took out, um, there's a thing in Tennessee called a legacy farm. Okay. That uh, if the farm has been in the family continuously being farmed, um, there's like some tax breaks and stuff once it's designated a legacy farm. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
Kyle happens to be friends with these folks that own <clears throat> this legacy farm. Right. And he and two other people have permission to take out there. Okay. So where our float took place, you would normally have had to have stopped a mile, mile and a half further Fire. back up the river. Okay. Because yeah. that's like the last takeout. Yeah. But we kind of got to fish an additional mile, mile and a half that doesn't get fished because there's no takeout. Right. Unless you happen to be friends with that particular that, yeah. farm owner. And so, typically that last mile and a half, you said, is where the bigger fish hold, a little faster current. Okay. Yeah. Fight stronger. So you, we caught like one, one and a half pounders. like For, for the most part. Yeah. And I think, you know. Your biggest fish was probably you know close to two pounds. Yeah, you know, something like we that. We didn't get anything nothing super like big, no six right. pounders or anything crazy. Right. But like like Ben said earlier, we we had the cold snap happen while we were there. Like when we first rolled into town, midday temperatures were like eighty, yeah, two eighty four, low of sixty, and the morning that we fished was like thirty seven, thirty eight. So would you, would you say like, I mean, especially fishing sinking lines, like what depth of water were you fishing? I mean, especially if it's cold, were you trying to get down lower? It was kind of all over the place. It was higher. really to get it down because of the current, not, not the depth. Yeah. I mean, not the, not the temperature. It was more, more. No, no, no. No, it was just to beat the, the speed of the river. Yeah. There were a couple, like there, a lot of it was shallower with the, like the ledges and the troughs, but there were a couple spots where it was slower moving when we first put in that it was like a couple feet deeper that you were coaxing them up from. Yeah. Um, super cool though. Incredibly beautiful fish. They were all barred up. Um, super dark. Yeah. Just really just gorgeous. Really, and they, really gorgeous. They fight mouth. like, they're so fun to I mean, I don't know if you've ever caught one, but smallmouth fight. They don't fight like largemouth. They they run a lot more because they're used to sitting in current and really? staying in place. It, yeah, it was it it felt kind of like a saltwater fish. Like it took off and it ran. And you yeah. any good aerials like back to back to back jumps? Uh, maybe. I mean, one? I had I had one of mine like really you know a lot of jumps, but right for the most part just bulldogging. Yeah. Exact. Yeah. yeah. Um, so is it like, uh, my only drift boat experience was in, on, in trout country. Was it similar to that where you'd have, you know, certain areas that you guys went to that was specific for fishing and then there was others, you know, maybe a hundred yards downstream that were not as good. Yeah. Yeah. There there was definitely a section of the river that we pretty much just like rode through. That was the lunch, lunch spot. That. The lunch spot was more just it was lunchtime. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, because we, we, we didn't do a huge length of river. Right. Um, we only did about probably three and a half, four miles mm-hmm. um, total. So we were able to pick it apart and, like, really go slow. And Yeah. Kyle's been fishing it since he was a kid. Uh, he grew up in Greene County. He grew up there uh, fishing it since he's a kid. So, like, he knows the river. So, we just took our time, picked it apart. Um, but, yeah, there's one section that we went through that had more of a sandy bottom. 
with okay. uh, a lot of grass. Yeah. And he was like, you know, you look at it and you're like, Dan, this should be good. Right. Goes, exactly the opposite. I never catch fish here, so we're just going to fucking blast through it. Mm-hmm. And we did. And then once we got back to the ledges, then it was like, all right, slow back up, you know, work all these ledges, potholes. Yeah. And so, that was the name of the game. Yeah. So I know you said that uh, the first time you tried to go out the the uh, – the dam was not, oh, so we were on a, was not we, we weren't on a on Different. a tailwater okay. when we were smallmouth fishing we were okay. on a freestone okay yeah one of the things that I've read about smallmouth bass is you know just they're they're partial to structure mm-hmm. and um, you know so I mean certainly validating that point about the grass versus kind of the rock ledges and stuff if you know the river is probably more dominant rock ledge. I guess the grass would be less favorable in terms of cover and right. Yeah. Well, they're ambush predators. Yeah. You know, so they're going to sit down in, you know, down in that crevice that the ledge has created. It gets them out of the current, so they're not expending energy. And as that bait fish is come coming through, that's disoriented, tumbling or whatever, they can come up, eat it, you know, and back out of the current. So right. well, and it was cool too. The water was like. It was pretty perfect. It was clear, but it had just a little haze to it in certain spots, so you could get away with a little. Like at one point, I was fishing a two foot leader, yeah, and they were they were eating the along with the the cold. Yeah, we had rain come through mm-hmm. on Saturday on Saturday morning, mm-hmm. so there was a little bit of off color to the water. Uh, wasn't completely clear because you get up there, you know. A lot of agriculture, mm-hmm. so you get a little bit of rain, and thankfully that's all we got was a little bit of rain, and you get runoff from farm fields that you know mm-hmm. gets the turbidity up. Yeah, but it was essentially clean, clear water, just a little off color, which yeah. you know plays in our favor essentially. Right. Well, and, and what I was getting at is it was like a little bit good for us tactic wise, but still clear enough you could like actually watch a fish like see the fly and spin on it and chase it down. Yeah, it's yeah. Cool. which was super neat. Um, Saw an otter while we were on the river, yeah. which was cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if it was your fish or mine. Right before lunch, one of us hooked a fish, and we saw something like fly into the boat out of the corner of the eye. But then, like, no one. Figured it was out your fish. Okay, it was your fish. Um, and as Ben was landing his fish, because I, I I batted clean up the whole day. I stayed in the back of the boat, and. I remember seeing something fly into the boat, but it like I never heard it land in the boat or anything. And it was just like, you know, that anomaly. You're like, did I just see it? Like, that was weird. I thought I saw something fly. So didn't think anything more of it. Ten minutes later, 20 minutes later, we, you know, dropped the anchor. We're having lunch. And in the gunnel box where the rod tubes are, there was a fucking um, crawdad <laughs> that Ben's fish, when he was in the process of landing it, had thrown it up, and that's what had come into the boat. And that's what we'd seen fly out of the fish. Was he still alive or no? No, oh, okay. No. Well, I mean they're they're pretty hardy creatures, but yeah. fairly I'd say fairly fresh. Yeah. Oh yeah, fresh. Yeah. Like you know, like not, that day for not sure. gooped up, but yeah. you know, dead. But you know, but you know. Four inches, three inches long. Wow. Yeah. Little, little crawdad. And, of course, we all laughed and said, you know, oh, look, 
Look the fish threw up, and we're not throwing <laughs> crawdad patterns. <laughs> we're throwing bait fish patterns. Yeah. yeah. And we were eating sushi, so it was perfect. Yeah. Just um, put it on top of your California roll. Kyle tried. He made an honest effort to get me to eat it. <laughs> the crawdad or sushi? The crawdad. Oh. The crawdad. I, I, I like sushi. I don't know what this this new thing is. I've been not liking sushi. I don't know, man. What's your what's your what's your favorite sushi? I really love a spicy tuna roll. Like it's kind of a classic. I feel like that's a white bread peanut butter and jelly no, sandwich. Yeah. Agreed. Okay. But okay. like yeah. I'm not a big like a, it, I'm not a big California roll guy. I think that's kind of like you're, whatever. You're, um but I really like Escalar, a nigiri. I think like that's Okay. That's probably my favorite. Um favorite fish like in that sushi sashimi nigiri right. realm like it's it's freaking candy yellowtail hamachi over y- here yellowtail's really good hand. too it's it, it's it's tough it's all pretty damn good yeah i'm not a big i don't do a lot of salmon rolls that's not very appealing to me so how was drift boat sushi was it good was it like gas station sushi that like it wasn't so, gas station sushi, but it might have been Kroger sushi. Yeah, it could have been oh, public sushi. I was gonna say, was it yeah. Wednesday? Yeah, it was. It was a little bit Wednesday esque. Um, Five dollar Wednesday public. It could have been. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was funny. He's like, we got the good stuff, and then <laughs> the last Fancy. two pieces were. Was it the smoked salmon? It looked like, it. and it was. And he was trying to. It get, was yellow. I was like, no, no, I'm good. I'm eating some brisket back here because we had leftover brisket that we brought. It's like I'm good. I'm I've switched back over to beef. How about that combo? A little brisket sushi uh, soiree. Yeah, under the right context and the right rolls, fantastic idea. So you'd you'd recommend people to bring uh, sushi out on their skiffs for their, you know, to be to be honest, <laughs> when lunch, it's not for. I haven't done it fishing wise, but like when there's a rocket launch on a clear night, I'll go get. I've gotten two rolls three times and gone and parked my skiff, anchored up, and watched it launch and ate sushi. It's kind of fun. Wow. Okay. Um, sounds pretty elitist. Yeah. Well, he is a fly fisherman. Typical. <laughs> I am the Benfluencer. <laughs> it's okay. I don't make better. I don't start. Fine. So uh, yeah, that was that was pretty much uh, the experience that we got uh we were going to fish uh the south holston on monday um robert up at uh, south holston river fly shop was going to have the day off was going to take us and uh that plan was interrupted unfortunately by the well pump going out Mm. and i spent the day babysitting and waiting on the well guys to get there pull the pump out put a new pump on and all of that so probably not a two two thousand dollars later um yeah i wish we could have just gone fishing and it's Lucky probably well not as pretty as the tailwater but heck of a cool process watching them do it Right. Um, oh, yeah. And of course, that stuff's more fun when it's not your money that's getting spent on it. <laughs> it's like, it was like Larry paid for Disney World. So you didn't pitch in, Ben? No. That I, was your, it was that pretty was, cool. It was pretty cool process to watch. Yeah. To like see that. Like, like, you know, like that well was dug when I was probably Wyatt's age now, probably a, a, a freshman or sophomore in, in high school. And I, rem- I can vividly remember them actually drilling that well. 
Mm. And, uh, you know, just, I mean, it's a piece of mechanical equipment. Shit, shit breaks. So, yeah. yeah. But, uh, you know, like, when I realized that was what was wrong, I was like, oh, fuck me. This is not going to fucking be good, you know? And uh, I couldn't even really picture how, how do you change out a pump that's at the end of the water line that far far underground and we youtubed it and googled it with like i don't know what the actual percentage of of hey let's see if we can do this ourselves but the we 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 took a look so that's not a diy fix that's uh well to be fair you can you you could if you're it's, fucking dumb enough to do if it. If you're dumb enough to do, there's just a lot of risk involved. You break a pipe and that thing fall, you're done. Yeah, you got you got some issues. So I don't want to fuck around with that. Yeah, yeah, better, at better and, at all, and we didn't. No. So we so called a guy who. I mean, honestly, dude who did it for us is fourth generation. Really? Yeah, well, the uh, specialist in wells. In wells, oh, super yeah. nice guy. And literally, he he was like, he came by, double check, was like, "Yep, it's definitely the well pump." Um, I'll get what I need. I'll be back. I'm finishing up, you know, around the corner, and uh, I'll be back after lunchtime. And eh, it should take us about two hours. Comes back. I mean. If you'd have started the stopwatch and then stopped it, it took him about two hours. Like, yeah. I mean, he knew what, I mean, it yeah. was like him and one guy just real efficient. Yeah. Real efficient. And it, it was interesting when the pump, I don't know if it's what caused the pump to go out or a result of the pump going out, but it shot like a bunch of mud in the line. Oh, it was fucking nightmare. And it was like, we had to flush the line. We were flushing the yeah. toilet because it was like, this like sand was out. coming out. Yeah. I'm like the heck, and we go down and look at the filter, and the filter's just caked. Oh, so man. then we're like, I guess we need new filters. So we had to go track those down, and then we're oh, swapping them out, letting this one get clogged, put the next one in. We got it running clean, but so uh, it's always an adventure. Yeah. But it, honestly, what homestead. a what a fun trip. There was the the homestead's beautiful. There's there's wildlife all around the yeah. Most mornings. Uh, get up at least out one side of the house you're gonna see deer mm-hmm. um one morning there was deer in the backyard deer in the front yard um i guess next to the last morning was when all the there was the three bucks yeah we got to watch yard. like gay chicken with deer it's pretty interesting one oh, of them was like a little bit of power move ready to yeah but it was yeah. the it was like classic where the the guy who has no business being the cool guy is trying to prove his stuff well, yeah, you, it's pre-rut right now, right? No, yeah. The little guy's got to be the loudest. Yeah, and he so he, hurt. like, mounts the other one that's actually looks like, I've been around the block, kid, and he just, like, yep. looks at him, and he's like... Yeah. But it was funny. I, it was just so uh fun chuckle for the day. You guys got plans to go back and uh, do an extended yeah. fish and stay? Or? Yeah. Naturally. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Probably Great barbecue up there too. By thinking the way. Uh, most likely like a week to ten days right after Christmas. Nice. Mm. Yeah. So. So will you be predominant? Uh, is the uh, bass fishing good that time, or is it mainly? No, trout? that'll be shut off. That'll okay. be shut down. Uh, it'll be trout during okay. that time of year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, 
would be post-spawn for, for the Browns. Um, about middle of November, um, the Browns will start um, getting on the red. And, uh, you know, that'll last a couple, three weeks. And yeah. so, uh, you know, by December, end of December, going into January, you know, Fisher coming off the reds and eating again. And yeah, should be good fishing. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I haven't been doing any fishing, unfortunately. I've been indisposed due to a number of things, but uh, I'm hoping to get out soon and get my boat done one of these days and get back to fishing and, and, you know. Fishing and living, man. Fishing and living, yeah. Hopefully I can get up to trout country you're welcome to come up soon over the okay you know between christmas and new year's yeah. I, I mean literally the more the merrier okay i'm for sure going the um and i'm headed back up in two weeks yep. to Asheville for the weekend mm. ted any fishing plans for you um not in the foreseeable future season pretty much closed uh or yeah season pretty much closed at the end of september um, did a little bit of fishing. I actually had a little bit of work done on the house up in Gas Bay. I had uh, a contractor come and move my chimney from the side of the house to the middle of the house, so I had to go and inspect the work and uh, took a little bit of advantage of the fact that it was, um, you know, end of season and uh, I was up there. So, fished for a bit. So, you poached a few uh, beets. Um, I wouldn't say I poached a few beats, but some beats were made accessible. <laughs> so can you, um, for the, for the listeners out there that don't know, and cause I don't know, can you explain what a beat is? Basically just uh, a sector on a river that you're, you're, you're assigned, um, okay. you know, maybe could be, um, three or four pools, um, that you either share with, um, so it's not a uh, measured distance. It's no, more of no, a, no. It's okay. more like specific sectors. So, I mean, depending on, I mean, the river doesn't hold fish in every part, nook and cranny of the river. So there are pools that are obviously formed that hold fish. There are some holding pools and there are some sections of the river that fish just kind of travel through and just tend to like hold temporarily before they move to like a, a, a retaining pool where they'll okay. just kind of sit. Now I've got a question for you. Yeah. Um, from the time that I went up and fished with you, yes. um, you guys had that crazy um, amount of rain and all the flooding. Yeah. Did they have to redraw and, and come up with new beats based on changes to the river? That's a that's a great question, and actually, I, I had that question, and they won't. So um, the way that the, for example, the Grand Cascopedia is. What do you mean they won't? They won't, because for example, a river like the Grand Cascopedia, it's all predetermined real estate. It's property that is owned by private camps. Okay. Um, and and is basically that that is your property, and it's either shared property or it's it's one hundred percent. Owned property, and um, so basically the property line ends, you know, and 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 on one end and ends on the other end, and that's it. So if you're if you lose your pools, 
due to like a weather event, like flooding or something like that, and your pools just get all washed out, that's it. Like you got to wait mm. for new pools to form and stuff like that. So they won't. They won't. Well, really I understand. Draw. I understand that. That's kind of what I'm getting at. Is yeah. when the river changes, which is just a natural event, right? Does the little lady that gleefully tells you how much you have to pay, um, does it change the amount? Like the good, the good section, the good sector or section or the good pools change. So yeah, I, I I hear what you're saying, but they they don't. It doesn't change anything. If the pool gets washed away, then you know, I mean, that's just unfortunately a casualty of the weather event. So they. You know, in in certain beats, you're fishing several pools. You're not fishing just one. You're not fishing just one pool. You have actually in all beats, you're fishing several pools, not just one. So, um, you know, I mean, if one pool gets washed away, maybe all the rocks got picked up at the next pool, and that changed completely. So, I mean, it's it's in a constant state of evolution, right? So sure. the river is constantly changing. It's never going to be the same one. But year the, the next. value of the beat doesn't ever the value change. Of the beat doesn't ever change. Wow. And and and. I mean, there's there are arguments against why that doesn't change, um, but there are also, you know, for example, in the last thirty years, the guide rate has been the same for 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 guides, um, you know, and what their salaries are, and that hasn't changed. And so, I mean, it's just it's an old way of thinking, and um, you know, from a management perspective, to be completely honest, I feel like people are just doing whatever the easiest taking the path of least resistance oh we did it like this last year we should do it again this year you know right and and, yeah. and there's no thought that goes into whatever the future planning is outside of um so their man, man their management plan is status quo correct yeah that's but not I, management no it's not but they, they what they do is they manage the finances of how each beat is sold and that's right. pretty and and the labor required to right. guide on those beats even still i got to think that that raises more conservation revenue than the way that you know the states does it in most areas you know well, sure it's public water yeah the, as long as you have your fishing license it's open and free so is there a like governing body you can become a part of to help yeah. guide change there there are a few um the atlantic salmon federation uh does a lot of work with uh a number of um state entities to be able to um help with their definition of laws and rules and regulations, well, does not and be provincial entities. No, so they'll work. They'll work with the provincial government to to help with the research necessary. You said state entities. I don't want people. Down no, no. Here well, I mean, like, okay, provincial, state. You know what? I, like, I mean, like a defined territory. Um, but to ultimately determine what the institutions are that govern govern those rivers, and and so they'll give a lot of um, information to help with, um, you know, a lot of ammo to these government entities to to, to assist with. So, without going down a rabbit hole, if it's even a potential option, what happens when a section of river runs river? God runs through a tribe versus a yeah, province years. like is there like reservation stuff that comes into play well or? to be completely honest um so the 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 Mi'kmaq nation that's there um mm -hmm. the reservation they technically govern the river and, right and, all um, of it all of it entirely they have 100 percent entitlement to those rivers and they could put nets in the rivers and stuff like that but 
There's a club, for example, on the Grand Cascopedia called the Cascopedia Club, and it's all the private camp owners that get together, and they pretty much negotiate year over year mm-hmm. with uh, the Mi'kmaq to prevent them from putting nets in. I think they pay something like $8 million annually to keep the nets out of the river. And uh, everybody in the community gets uh, a portion of that $8 million. Wow. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, you know, I mean, people... That's people a lot from, of wampum. Yeah. <laughs> the people from the Mi'kmaq Nation, you know, they go and they fish the river when they want. Um, you know, some do it respectfully. So, if, like, you know, there are paying people, like paying customers on the river, like, you know, and somebody shows up to fish from from the from the reserve, you know, they'll say, oh, hey, you're fishing here. Okay, I'm going to move on and I'll either wait for you to be done or I'll go fish somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Some are a little bit more dickish about it yeah you're on my water yeah yeah yeah, exactly you know this this is my water this is my land get off my land round eye Um, (laughs) (laughs) so is it like how does that work can you like marry into that or is that by birth or or no you you're you're born into into status yeah so um I just, without I getting that without getting extended. too into the history of it, right. you know, I mean, there there are certain definitions um, governed by a piece of legislature called uh, the Indian Act, uh, which was drafted in the '70s by the government of Canada, and ultimately determines who can be or who can claim status as an Indian, okay, and and not. Hmm. Um, but if you know, if you're from the reserve there, you grew up there. Technically, you have rights to everything yeah. that the land provides. And yeah. um, that means you can hunt year-round. You don't have to buy tags. Um, you yep. can fish year-round. You don't have to buy a license. Um, and and you can fish where you want without having to pay. You yeah. know, it's, it's your river. Yeah. So, I mean, in my experience out west, it was uh, a river that was one of the banks encountered reservation land and the other one yeah. was public or private. Yep. And there was one section of the reservation land that you had to have a special tag for that you were able to fish. Um, but there was others that you like, you couldn't even land And the way that they differentiated. It was, um, it had to do with the flow and it was like the center of the riffle. So it was dependent on how the river changed that year. So one year, it could be, you know, 90% of the river was native right. reservation land, and the other part was you know, oh, free, wow. and then the other other year it would be like 50-50. So. The, the school of thought is very different, you yeah. know, because really, like, these people, their way of life traditionally was living off of the land. You yeah. know, mm-hmm. they, they lived off the river. You know, they, they've been netting for hundreds of years. Um, you know, they've been, they'd been eating off of the land for hundreds yeah. of years. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, really, in, the, in their minds, they're, and, and rightfully so, they're entitled to everything that the land has to offer and what the rivers have to yeah. offer. So, yeah. you know, who are we to kind of say, hey, you well, know, yeah. your livelihood, fuck right, your, your whole way of life and heritage. Yeah, and heritage, you know, well, what you grew up on or what your ancestors grew up on, fuck it. You know, it's not, it's not our place to determine well, and that, it's, really. The reason I ask is because you watch shows like Yellowstone yep. or... Um, Longmire, where there's always these different, like, and some of it's hyperbole, obviously, because there's different things going on where both sides are always against each other or working with each other and figuring things out. But you see there's two very clear different ways of life and knowing where you're at and that you have a tribe there and you have yeah. camps there. I was like, I just wanted basically, how does this work? How do they harmonize the two? And 
you know, pretty cool. What, yeah, absolutely. And I think what's really cool is, um, you know, uh, the Mi'kmaq negotiated uh, also that any of the private camps, whenever they post jobs for guides, that they post them on the reserve first. So, you know, first right of refusal is to the natives coming to work on the river and stuff like that. And so really kind of looking out for their own. And if they can't post, you know, if they can't fill that position from within the reserve, then there are, you know, these camp owners. Are there uh, quite a bit of, are there quite a few indigenous guides? Yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, there's uh, one of the camps, uh, Micmac camp is 100%, almost 100%, um, you know, native indigenous from the reserve that's, that's there. And, um, you know, they have, there's fam- a lot of female guides, there are there few, as well. Yeah, yeah, there are a few female guides as well. I mean, there's a pretty good... Quebec has a, a great culture, um, you know, that's that's cultivated, um, you know, uh, or garnered massive interest from, you know, uh, a group of female anglers that's continued to grow. And, uh, you know, I think recently they were profiled in the Drake uh, magazine. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know there there are certainly a few guides. There's a, a guide co-op that was formed a few years ago as well. That um, you know, I mean, is a great way for people coming in from out of town who may not have a direct contact with a guide to be put in touch with a local yeah. guide. And um, you know, that's been, uh, to my understanding, that's worked out pretty well as well. Awesome. Um, so, as a guide in your area, um, I don't you, guide in the area. No, like at say. Joe Schmo wanted to move up there and become a guide on that sure. river. So you would be applying for a specific beat, and you would only work that beat, or would you? No, I mean, I think it gets. Um, here's the thing: you you apply to go work at a at a camp, and the camp controls, you know, who who gets what beat because the camp owns certain beats, or the river society manages certain beats, right? Okay. So you know, um, and 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 here's the thing: generally, each beat will have two guides, um, one angler per. One guide per angler. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, really it changes from day to day. One day you might be here, one day you might be there. But the thing is, I mean, these guides, they're all talking to each other all the time. So right. sometimes at the end of the season when, when camp water becomes available because the camps close at the beginning of September or at the end of August, you know, uh, the Cascopedia River Society will will hire camp guides to come and work maybe those beats or other beats to fill in space and stuff like that so you get a lot of guides who become really you know uh, versatile in their experience on the river like they have a lot of experience throughout the entire river and the nice thing is like every pool is different you don't have the same structure everywhere some are like super fucking deep pools some are super shallow pools some the run is incredibly quick some have these like you know steep ledge drop offs Um, you know I mean it's um, it, it's a really, really. On what rivers do they use the Looky Loo? Oh, uh, they do that on like the Bonaventure River, like that kind of like te- uh, ste- um, a reverse uh, periscope. periscope. It's stethoscope, telescope, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> periscope. But um, you know now you heard about this? No, I it's haven't. like a. It's basically like a. A mi- there's like a series of mirrors that kind of like it's like a telescope ultimately with a lens or so, it's a periscope ultimately but you just op- put it in the water and you see all the fish there so clearer waters like you know the Bonaventure River or the Petite Cascopedia um, you see a lot of fish in, in pools but like I mean you're gonna see fish in those rivers because the water is clear as fuck anyway you'll see the shadows you know if you really need to use that thing it's just a waste of space and time 
So you're looking at the fish, and they're looking right back at you. Yeah, and exactly. Wait, and they just sit there. Like, you they see me, there. see you, see they me. They just sit there. <laughs> no, no, no. They they, they well, actually just sit there. But the thing is, if if a fish is seeing you, it's not going to eat. So you know, I mean, it, really. So you should wear your Sims River camo. Exactly. Yeah, okay. you need to be decked out. Yeah. But it's but it's kind of interesting. It's not. I'm getting the vibe that it's not like here where any dick beater can go get a six pack and start guiding. Like no, well, you, you gotta, don't even need that for trout guides. No, you can I just understand. Claim, claim lame. But but what I'm getting out up there is you can't, that's not an option. You have to be hired on. Like, there's like a vetting process, well, but not even vetting so much as like. So you, you, you can guide. Um, like, you don't have to be a part of a camp to guide because there is public, like publicly accessible water um, that people hire outside guides to come and guide. Okay. You know, um, there's a few really, really good guides. Um, David Bishop has been working as an independent guide on on the Grand Cascopedia and actually all the rivers in the in the area for um, a number of years. Um, and you know, he's a perfect example of somebody who's been very successful guiding independently on the river. Um, and uh, you simply put, you need to put in a request to the River Society, and the board of directors on that river will say yes, this person can guide on our river. No, oh. this person cannot. Gotcha. So, so you're an elected official. Uh, yeah, no, no, no. You're 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 given permission to guide on the river, and okay. and part of that is because they want to ensure that somebody there's no knows. dick beaters. There's no dick beaters for one, but two, you know, they want to ensure that the people that are coming to guide on the river, one, are so knowledgeable and know mm-hmm. what they're doing, and two, um, you know, to to mitigate any risk, like you know, if you have an inexperienced guide or something like that, you know, somebody who's a first year guide may not have the same kind of knowledge, safety, uh, experience sure. or whatever, you know, it, people die on rivers. Like, yeah. you know, you, you, yeah. you hear stories about people drowning, somebody getting tipped out of a, um, you know, a canoe while it's floating, they get sucked under in, in fast current and the water fills up in their waders. It, it's and a horrible way to yeah. go, you know? So, I mean, it's, you want to prevent that at all costs. And so it, it takes experience for people to go and do that. So no carpet baggers or... I'm I'm sure there are carpet baggers, but at the end of the day, I mean they're few and far between because one, it's not necessarily. Um, I mean there are areas that you can just go and wade, access to wade on your own. Right. But really, uh, you know, it takes somebody to know what they're doing in order to effectively fish that water, and most yeah. people who don't know what they're doing, um, you know, will not fish the water properly and therefore assume less risk. Okay. So is it? It's more of a communal guide situation where they all kind of everybody still the the everybody knows everybody there okay is there kind of more of a brotherhood centered around it like everyone feels like they earned their place um i mean like i think probably at the at the camp level where you have like head guides and people who've Mm -hmm. been there for a long time you know people will be like i don't give a fuck you go fish with that cocksucker over there i you know i don't want to do that and and you know there's a lot of like um because the rivers, they'll run along highways and stuff like that, like uh, along like a you know two lane highway through the mountains and stuff. So there's a lot of guardrail guiding where you know these older guides will just kind of sit on the guardrail and just kind of hang out and watch and say, okay, you know, cast again, put it over there, blah blah blah. <laughs> guardrail uh, guiding, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But I mean, you pass me another smoke. Yeah, no, actually, you know, they'll sit there smoking darts all day and just you know sit on the guardrail and, and and shout from from above. But I mean, these are guys that have been doing it for thirty five years. They know where the fish are. Mm-hmm. You know, they can they can say you know cast behind that rock over there. You see it, you know, and and there's always fish sitting there. And you know, these are guys that are or these are guides that are guiding their clients to you know these. 35 40 pound fish in certain sectors because they know where the fish yeah. are because they've been doing it that long makes sense smoking darts and drinking what's the drink of choice for the guide up there is it like uh gin gin yep oh. gin there's uh the liquor store that's there has run out of gin several times especially at peak season when you have a lot of anglers there it's like it's real hard to uh, well gin yeah. one runs thin yeah but you know, people who are, I guess it's gin and tonic. So, I mean, you go to the grocery store to buy tonic, there's Tonic's no out. tonic. It's fucking, so, if the tonic is empty or it's gone for what like about a limes? straight. Hard to find some limes? You know, or I mean, look, lime, like the, a, ice, limes, tonic, and gin are, uh, you know, it's scary. Those are the commodities. Yeah. So, yeah. like, if you're trying to grease the wheels a little bit, and you're, you, let's just say you have a place up there. Yeah. Such as yourself. Yes. Do you bring in several things of gin and tonic with you and like you know when supplies low and you're like i want to make some buddies yeah you I was go you say. go be alcohol santa i i mean you could be alcohol santa but um i i've never had an issue leaving my liquor behind somewhere and being alcohol santa yeah but um you know i think just by nature of how people are in the community they tend to bring their liquor home at night so yeah um you know, not that people don't share, don't want to share, or, you know, aren't generous at all. I think it's just kind of like culturally, it's a very different place in terms of the way people share their um, drinks. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we can make Ted a very popular man by sending him a couple cases of key limes. Yeah. During the hot season. No, I, <laughs> I mean, look, really, if somebody needs a lime in their gin and tonic, like, I mean, come on. Buck up, buttercup, yeah, right? Dude, seriously. I mean, like at, at that level, like, fuck, can you really tell the difference? Give your balls. I don't a know, man. It might be like picture that it's cold, snow starting to come down. Yeah, but that's you not just, during the fishing season. I, I get it, but they still got to live there. People, people live there. No, no. You look. want something a little tropical? You want to feel like you're sunbathing? I'd squeeze a lime in there. No, of course. I, you know, there's there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, at the, at the end of the day, you don't need it. I mean, I think the, the, the biggest thing that you really need is just ice. Ted, ice and liquor. Ted's a, Ted's a no-lime guy. I'm He's a, very clearly, much gathering that. Gin, <laughs> gin on the rocks. No <laughs> tropical beats. I've done gin on the rocks several times. It's not so bad. Gin listen. and water, you know, if I really need to, but... Listen, if you're, yeah. you're not a man if you're doing, not doing gym neat. <laughs> Gin neat. Gin neat. <laughs> As I have my sixth beer. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but I mean, you know, there's uh, Quebec actually makes, there are a lot of gin producers out in Quebec. Um, and what's interesting <laughs> is the uh, our uh, liquor stores are central, centrally governed by the mm-hmm. government, centrally managed by the government. It's a chain of liquor stores called the SAQ. So the Quebec government runs everything, um, and they have a policy that if you are uh, an alcohol maker, 
um, from the province, and you effectively go through the steps to make, you know, a liquor or a beer or some kind of alcoholic beverage that passes, you know, all food and drug administration inspections, so on and so forth. If you say, hey, SAQ, I want you to carry my booze, they have to. It's in their it's in their sort of mandate. Like their charter. Okay. Their charter to promote locally made liquors. So I mean you have a lot of really shit tasting liquor in gins because <laughs> <laughs> people have just put, put things together. The old bathtub yeah. gin. Well, Prison hooch. Because the the SAQ has to carry it if you if you've gone through the appropriate steps to make it consumable <laughs> so i'll have three of the dirty bottle gins yeah yeah you just gotta drink more you so Taste next question sure did you move your fireplace to the center for heating purposes um it, secondly yes okay um the first reason was because um the seal on the chimney at the side of the house got pushed off by the ice okay. uh, in the spring, and um, it was raining pretty heavily, and I woke up one morning and fucking tons of water on the main floor, and I was like, oh, shit. And I knew exactly what was going on, so um, it was like a weekday. I was supposed to be working, but um, my plans got uh, ruined. Uh, my work plans got ruined, so I ended up tearing my wall out and pulling all the insulation out and replacing a, a, a section on my roof to pull the chimney out. Um, and then, uh, so I had to do the repairs. And yeah, you know, labor is a little scarce right now, so you know, people are taking jobs left and right and center just with everything going on. And um, you know, the chimney guys weren't available up in, in, until the fall, and so. When I met with the chimney guy from when the chimney really, really was all fucked up in, in April, I met the guy in July, um, and I misinterpreted his availability as, um, oh, yeah, sure, I can do the job like on this day. No, it was, I can come and look at the job and tell you when I'll come and do it. And then he came at the uh, end of September. And did the job, and uh, his recommendation was to move the chimney over to the middle of the house because it would it would heat the house a lot better. So that's why, yeah, that's how that happened. Okay. So there you have it, folks. If you want to schmooze a Canadian, get him a case of gin. Yep. Yep. Not the shitty stuff. Not the yeah. shitty stuff. Not the no. shitty local Not the stuff. local shit. Not the <laughs> local shit. Uh, um, the Oak Hill gin's great. You should try it. I bet. Fuck. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I can't people imagine. just like people like to drink, man. That's it. You know, I mean, uh, you, you you get off the river and somebody's got a cooler and you you're sitting there fucking well beyond when the sun's gone down and you know, you're maybe 10 to 12 beers deep and then somebody pulls out a bottle of gin and it's like you all of a sudden you look at your watch and you've been there three and a half hours after you've been done fishing. Right. It's a good community of people. Sounds like it, it sounds like a fun time. Yeah. It is. All right. Well, um, anybody got anything else to chit chat about or kick around? It's getting a little bit late. Keep your hands off of your angling partner's drag. <laughs> Don't be a drag queen. Don't be a drag queen. Nothing on my docket. Yeah. Nothing yeah, on I your think. docket? Well, you, actually, there is something on your docket. That's why I'm getting us to bed. You're going to push a skiff around in the morning. Well, I'm going to try. 
Circles, here we come. All right. Well, uh, that's going to get her wrapped up with uh, episode 71, right? Wow, we're getting up there. So uh, thanks for joining us around the old oak table. We'll catch up with you guys maybe in a week or two. And until then...